This is Mike from Theology on Mission podcast. Before we get into this conversation with Drew Hart, I want to let you know about our church planting webinar coming up on April 17th. The topic is mission, mutuality, and money. Three M's. Fitch is going to be riffing on what it looks like to be planting congregations in a post-Christendom context. Lastly, if you're looking for an MA or for a D-min, a doctorate in ministry, check out Northern. We're, we are recruiting right now for our MA in theology and mission and our doctorate in contextual theology. Come study with uh, people like Fitch, Greg Boyd. Uh, we have Lynn Coick, our new dean who's teaching here. We have our great New Testament faculty, uh, Scott McKnight, Nije Gupta, uh, Beth Felker-Jones is coming on board to Northern to teach theology. We have Mark Mulder from uh, Calvin Seminary who teaches, not to mention our Theology Mission Lecture Series, which gives you up-close and personal encounters with scholars, missiologists from all around the world. All right, end of commercial. Thanks for listening, friends. All right, ladies and gentlemen, here we are again, Theology and Mission Podcast with Mike Moore and a special guest. Mike Moore, here we are. I understand, before we introduce our special guest, mm-hmm. that we had some techno problems again at the Theology, uh, such a rarity at Theology on Mission <laughs> Podcast. Yeah, by, <clears throat> by techno, you don't mean like, like a techno beat, like a dance club. You mean oh, technology. Oh, did I use the wrong term? Yeah, yeah. Oh, Techno means I'm something a, very different to people. <laughs> when I, whenever this happens at home, uh, my 16-year-old says, "Boomer, boomer." <laughs> you are, you are a boomer. <laughs> I am a boomer, and I'm a, I'm an old dad too. So, uh, anyways, it's great to be with you, folks, at Theology and Mission Podcast. Where theology, and I can't even remember our tagline, uh, Mike Moore, because we're not in our studio right now. Theology meets the questions of culture for the kingdom of God. How about that? Yeah, that's good. If that isn't our tagline, we should make it our tagline because it kind of just rolled right off the tongue. Anyways, we're so grateful to have uh, Professor Drew Hart uh, on the program today, Uh, much to our uh, chagrin our technology did not work uh, Drew I take personally responsible for that because I have AT&T internet uh, or AT is it Wi-Fi did, is that the right term Mike Moore mm-hmm. yep that's yes it. Wi-Fi okay I have to make sure I got the right term uh, and we had techno problems oh I can't technical problems <laughs> but welcome back Professor Drew Hart you are a professor at Messiah University um, and uh, you've written a very important book, Who Will Be a Witness? Question mark is the title of it. Before that, you wrote a great book called The Trouble I've Seen, Changing the Way the Church Views Racism. And so already, you know, at a relatively young age, at least young in relation to me, uh, you have been prodigious in your production of, of good stuff for the church to read. Um, and I think something very unusual about you, Drew, is uh, that you, in some way or another, uh, claim the Anabaptist heritage. 
Can you explain a little bit about your relationship to the Anabaptists' uh, stream of theology, uh, if you can, for us? Yeah, well, number one, it's good to be on the podcast and to be in conversation with you guys. And Fitch, don't worry, I blame you too for for the mistakes. <laughs> don't worry about that. And um, no, it's been, it's good. And yeah, I do by the way, uh, only good friends call me Fitch. So I'm honored that you called me Fitch right there, Drew. Thanks so much for that. Yeah, no problem, no problem. <laughs> but yeah, I do have a, um, in fact, people are always trying to figure out what's my relationship with the Anabaptists, right? I got a, a message just this week. Someone asked me, are you Mennonites? Like, what's the deal, right? So, mm -hmm. um, in fact, I go to speak at Mennonite places. I usually have to tell them that I'm not Mennonites because they like to claim me as Mennonites when I'm not. Um, but I do often say I'm a friend of the Mennonites. Um, that's usually the language that I've given because I have a very strong relationship with um, many folks across the Mennonite church and especially uh, black and brown Mennonites in the Mennonite denomination as well. Um, I grew up um, in a predominantly, officially non-denominational kind of black Baptist-ish kind of congregation. So I didn't grow up in, around Anabaptist, hadn't heard of Anabaptist. First time I even heard the word was as an undergrad student at Messiah. Um, so I heard the word and as I often say, you know, I heard anti-Baptist, right? That's what I was thinking they were saying at first. Um, so definitely complete newbie as it related to that tradition. Um, because Messiah is interesting in some ways. I mean, it's kind of evangelical, kind of ecumenical, but also has what I usually call it Anabaptist likes in terms of as an institution. But in terms of the biblical and religious studies department, it actually has a pretty significant, strong Anabaptist um, you know, influence there in that department. So we've got Mennonites, Brethren in Christ, Church of the Brethren, and even strange folks like me move around and teaching in that space. And so it's a strong part of that. And so moving through, I got introduced to Anabaptism, not as much theologically as it was reading, like engaging with uh, biblical studies professors around Anabaptism, and some of it around church history, right? Um, and so... Um, when I, by the time I left Messiah, I would say I, I would not have called myself an Anabaptist. Like I was not using that term. There's no way, you know, I'd be like, oh, I'm an Anabaptist. I had no interest in that word uh, for myself. But I was asking and wrestling with Anabaptist oriented questions. Con convictions that had been very important were, had become more important for me. And then um, move, so I uh, got hired almost immediately after I graduated at Harrisburg Brethren Christ Church, which is this multiracial um, congregation in the city in Harrisburg. So I was a youth pastor there in this community. And uh, for the first time, kind of getting to see what some of this stuff meant on the grounds, right? As it's enfleshed, um, the kind of hospitality, the kind of Jesus-centered message that was there, um, hearing kind of peace ethics being kind of preached in everyday congregational life. Um, I would say, so I, I often say that not all BIC churches are that Anabaptist, but 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 this particular one I would still consider an Anabaptist Brethren in Christ congregation in that sense, but multiracial and urban in its um, um, character as well. And so, yeah, that was an interesting thing. Um, but the whole time that I was there, I did not consider myself an Anabaptist, right? Uh, they did. So there was this kind of tension in in the congregation in terms of you know when they when I got brought on the senior pastor, the first the question beforehand was. You know, 
what's your position on peace? Like, that's what he asked me. Um, just, he's like, you do know we are a peace church, right? So I was like, so I was like, you know, these are, I forget what I said exactly, but I gave some loose, like, these are important things that I'm wrestling with, but like, I didn't need to um, have a strong, um, you know, peace ethic in some kind of way. I just had to have some kind of wrestling with it basically. And to be aware of the tradition, right? That's all they were looking yeah. for. Um, so did all that, was there for four years, moved back to Philly. Going back now, I'm at my home church. I'm, I'm in the black church circles and networks and stuff. I'm getting my MDiv and moving in some ways in just uh, circles that would have been very familiar to me having grown up in. But all of a sudden, like I'm recognizing like I'm a little different now. You know, I mean, I do fit in there. It's not that I don't fit in, but I'm not also there are differences in terms of how. I think about my faith, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it, what I'm looking for and expect of the church, right? All these things have shifted. And so I'm like, oh, damn, these Anabaptists got me, right? <laughs> and so, so for me, um, the very first time I ever used the language of Anabaptist was when I was outside of it, when I moved away yeah. from it. That's when I began to use the term and then started to connect with this really vibrant Anabaptist community in Philly. Um, it's all throughout Philly. There's really just awesome Anabaptists. You got black Mennonites that are there, like second, third generation Mennonites, you know, in North Philly. You got Latino Mennonite, uh, my, my boy Juan, who's got like a church plant with like two thirds of their congregation are returning citizens, right? You got uh, Oxford Circle Mennonite in Northeast Philly, where they're doing like this really cool, like community development work. You got this large Indonesian and other immigrants um, in South Philly. Um, that's, I think is the largest Anabaptist church in the city of Philadelphia is Indonesian, yeah, yeah. right? <laughs> Um, you also got progressive Mennonites, all kinds of, you know, white progressive Mennonites, all that kind of stuff. All that stuff is happening there, but they actually gather together and they collaborate. And so when I would go, um, I would, you know, like for me, that became my norm for what it meant to gather among Anabaptists, right? Was Anabaptists of color in the city collaborating across even different denominations, um, trying to seek, you know, the shalom of our city. And so, so that was, became the norm for me for what it meant to be an Anabaptist. I always had to yeah. remind when I went to speak, I began eventually speaking at these like white Mennonite spaces. Like, I'm like, oh, I guess you guys are Mennonites too. You know, I guess you guys count, but like when I'm <laughs> in Anabaptist good. space, it's, it's Anabaptist. Baptists of color, right? Both yeah. in Harrisburg and in Philly, that that had been my norm and the starting point for Anabaptist mm. community. That mm. is that is a remarkable story. Uh, uh, Mike and I have our own stories as to how we became. Uh, you're an Anabaptist, right, Mike? <clears throat> uh, yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, in some way, I mean, you're, you're you're Christian reform, but you know, and I don't know how the two go together, frankly. But yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah. Well, you, it. It's, it's kind of similar to Drew. I think Drew and I were, were actually in college at the same time. I was at Bluffton and I had the same experience. I was taking these Mennonite history and thought classes and a Baptist theology, reading John Howard Yoder when I was 18. Um, but I was pretty proud about being the one Baptist kid. I wasn't Anabaptist. I was Baptist because I grew up in a Baptist church. Uh, but it was only after leaving Bluffton and then coming out here to Chicago that I started to kind of reconcile with how much that theology had shaped me. So did you take classes with J. Denny Weaver and Gerald Mast and all the, the crew? I did. I did. Yeah. 
yeah. all these, we call them the theological superstars of, <laughs> of Anabaptist theology. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, was, I just did at a residency just uh, uh, at Bluffton. So I spoke there, oh, but anyway, yeah. so a uh, virtual cool. residency. So I was hanging out with them for the week. Nice. Okay, so uh, so uh, I just want, you know, I got, uh, I, my life was going down the tubes and I just tell people I got saved through the ministry of Stanley Harawas. That's what I say. That's my short form of the story. <laughs> but um, I find it really important right now because I think, uh, you know, uh, Anab- when you say the word Anabaptist, it tends to align itself with the white Euro uh, stream of Anabaptists. And and frankly, some of the kind of uh, sectarian-ish communities and problems of the Mennonites, etc. By the way, I'm not throwing you Mennonites under the bus. Don't turn the podcast off. I'm just saying we all got our problems. And uh, you bring uh, a unique history and a unique uh, voice to this discussion. So I just want to go into it because your book's really important to me for that. Uh, for, I just wrote the Neo-Anabaptist uh, chapter in the TNT handbook on Anabaptist studies. And I included you, Drew, in the, Anab- I hope you don't mind, I included you in the Neo-Anabaptist category. And one of the reasons is because this book, Who Will Be a Witness, takes some themes that I think we could say are Anabaptist and, and gives them a different voice, uh, one that understands these themes through a black person's voice, a black church, even a black church voice. Let's, I'll just give you three and then you can comment on them. One is, you know, Jesus and the discipleship into Jesus is central to the Anabaptist faith. Uh, you talk about the radical revolutionary Jesus versus a deluded, whitened Jesus. I think that is just a, a major. Uh, what, uh, so, so can you just comment on how huge that is for people like uh, Fitch to uh, understand in terms of a contribution into the Anabaptist stream? Yeah, I mean, I think that is it's enormous, right? I mean, so on one hand, Anabaptists have been known for talking about centralizing uh, discipleship to Jesus and what it means to take Jesus seriously in our lives. Um, and the ethics and the practices that flow out of that. Um, so on one hand, it's not that familiar, but on the other hand, um, Jesus has been also westernized and whitened, right, and colonized. And I think there's aspects of the radicality of Jesus that aren't being taken seriously as it relates to everyday discipleship, even in Anabaptist communities. And so there's something meaningful that I think the Black church and even post-colonial conversations can add and contribute to even that conviction that we must follow Jesus seriously. And so, yeah, I think that um, it's those kind of fruitful tensions and conversations that I think make, um, help us uh, just attend to the presence of Jesus and what he's doing in the world today and how we can join in that work. Yes, and and then a second theme uh, is this kind of uh, uncovering, unwinding uh, the development of Christendom uh, and you kind of alluded to what you just said, colonialism, white supremacy. Now, for us Anabaptists, Christendom is a bad thing because it aligned culture with power. It aligned the church with culture and power in a way which skewed it. You bring uh, the black prophetic voice to in, in kind of an, an addition, uh, a way of giving us an, a deeper understanding of this. Could you go into that for just a few seconds? Moshe, uh, by the way, we've got a lot to talk about, uh, so yeah. I might be pushing the conversation. Yeah, no, that's so. good. That's good. Well, I mean, I think that I often tell even my students that, you know, 
no one um, enjoys talking about church history, I think, more than Anabaptists do as a means of critiquing, right, the broader church. But all of a sudden, usually falling short when it relates to their own complicity in the, some of the problems, right? And so there's this really powerful anti-Constantinian hmm. um, critique and Christendom and all that stuff, um, but then don't follow it to its logical conclusions to see how that outplays into colonialism and new diseased and distorted and mangled ways of Christianity going global, right? Um, and so I think that just as much as we pay attention to Christendom, we've got to pay attention to the impact and influences of colonialism, how it has distorted Christian witness and uh, on the ground as well. And so, yeah, that's some of what I want to do is bring those narratives together, right? How do I both, as someone in Christ, both draw from this Anabaptist tradition that I would say are my brothers and sisters in Christ, but also from the communities that raised me, that helped me to know that there's so much more to the story, right? And that we're missing it um, if we're not uh, seeing how it plays out into white supremacy um, that was birthed by the practice of Christian supremacy mm -hmm. over society. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Um, so uh, powerful. Um, and then, and then we'll just hit one more theme, and then we'll kind of go to uh, where you really pack in some great stuff at the last chapter. But one more theme is this theme of peace church that you were talking about earlier. The idea of nonviolence um, and strategies for the church uh, in in terms of our organizing. Um, how does the themes of nonviolence, non coercion, the way God works? Uh, what kind of a, what does your voice uh, kind of tune us into in that area? Yeah. I mean, in many ways, I often, my, my, this is my harsh critique on Anabaptists is that Anabaptists claim to be the peace church, um, but in some ways have not been the peace church as it relates to their presence in North America, right? Um, that the Anabaptists in reality have been which is more true to their language initially, which was non-resistance, right? That that has often been the case. It's actually been, been the very thing that they accuse people of calling them passive, right? But it actually has been passive in terms of actually engaging actively in the world, seeking mm -hmm. peace and God shalom uh, on behalf of others. And so I think that some of what I bring is both the lived experience and the wisdom of the black church that actually did seek those things out in tangible ways, right? Um, and so how do we bring the powerful ethic? They're right that that peacemaking is uh, so critical to understanding Jesus. You don't understand the gospel stories if you don't see the, the critique against violence that Jesus is bringing, um, then you're missing something in the gospel. And on the other hand, we've got to actually live that out. And so I think that um, what I do then is provide uh, practical, strategic ways that the church can live into that faithfully on the grounds. And so marrying theological ethics with social practice, right, social change theory and lived experience and kind of tr trying to just help people reimagine ways to engage from the grassroots, from the underside as the church, right? Not as individuals, not as Lone Rangers, but as <clears> the <throat> church, there's actually meaningful ways that we can engage and bear witness to the reign of God here on earth, make visible what the Jesus story for others as we seek and, and, and struggle along with our neighbors. And so uh, just real quick, uh, nonviolence in general, but I also talk about uh, organizing theory and movement theory. I even get a little into the weeds of talking about electoral politics just a little bit, um, just to, you know, test the waters, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that it's important for us to kind of think about ways that we can move forward faithfully as the church on the ground and bear witness to God's reign. Yes, yes. Uh, so, so great uh, the way you bring a new voice to the Anabaptist themes. The book, folks, is 
who will be a witness igniting activism for God's justice, love, and deliverance by Drew Hart. Mike Moore, before we go into the last chapter, why don't we talk a little bit about the struggles of being an Anabaptist these days? <laughs> uh, all uh, now, now you're. We have two white persons in the room and one black person in the room, and I think we might experience the struggles of the message, which is basically we just rehearsed. Although there's different. Uh, voices to it. What What's the number one struggle for you being an Anabaptist, Mike Moore? And then the number one struggle for you, Drew Hart. And then I, I, if there's, if, there, if you haven't said it all, I might pop in with a last comment on the struggle of being an Anabaptist today. Oh, man. Go ahead, Mike Moore. Oh, I, I, I was going to have Drew go first. Um, <laughs> 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 um Mine was kind of connected to a question I was going to have for Drew, but I, I think what I'll say f- say for me is uh, this idea of peacekeeping, you know, justice, uh, the work of nonviolence. Um, that that is one place where a lot of people in my church cannot go to. The, the idea of Jesus being at the center that makes sense. The idea of being radical with your faith that makes sense. But when it comes to the issue of being nonviolent, that's typically where people just want to stop and say, okay, I can do the first one. I can do the second one, but this I can't do. I can't go there with you. Uh, I, I think being people that preach nonviolence, but also being people that embody it in a way that engages the world is one of the things I find to be the most challenging. All right. Good word. Drew. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's interesting. So this semester I'm teaching Theology 3 and the themes for Theology 3 at Messiah, although it's changing after this year, but it's peace, justice and reconciliation. Right. And um, it's fascinating for my undergrad students, like the hardest. And in some ways, I mean, you can you can feel it in the room when we get to the peace section, which goes to your point, Mike. I mean, you could cut, you know, the ear with yeah. a knife. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just tense in the room. And the idea that that God is not a violent, wrathful God coming for you is offensive for mm-hmm. a lot of my students. I mean, you'd think that would be a freeing and liberating thing, but it's actually like, I mean, you might as well smack somebody's mama, right? I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's just wild. And so yeah. I do think that um, that what what when you begin to suggest not only that Jesus um, rejected violence, but then at the same time that Jesus also reveals God to us, that those two things together are deeply problematic and troublesome, especially for the way that we just deeply believe that violence makes the world go round um, and nationalism, American exceptionalism, all these things are so deeply wound into people's identities. I mean, people get more offended at that than me talking about white supremacy in the classroom, mm-hmm. right? And these are white evangelical students coming from conservative spaces and stuff. Yeah. Um, but, but, but that is deeply, I mean, they're connected problems, mm-hmm. but, but, but it's deeply troubling. So there's that, but then on the ground, I do think that 
Um, the way that Anabaptism has been racialized so often has, is also another issue. Mm. And it's happened in so many different ways, right? From So certainly the white ethnic Mennonitism, which is just a racialization of, of, of Mennonite identity, um, to I would also say neo-Anabaptist, the way that sometimes uh, race has not been thought about very carefully, right? Yeah. Um, and so there's just a reproducing of other evangelical problems as well. Mm. And so I think that it makes it really difficult if people don't have spaces like what I have experienced, which is in Harrisburg and Philly and uh, there's other pockets as well. Um, then sometimes people feel like, is this really a space? Is this a tradition that he can even embrace me? Right. Can I find belonging here? And in some ways it questions um, actual belonging in Christ. Right. Um, mm. Because of how Anabaptism actually plays out on the ground. Yeah. Man, those are so uh, helpful uh, comments from both of you, uh, and, and I don't know that I need to add anything onto it, but I really do think that uh, these days our our culture is so divided, so antagonistic, and I'm not just talking about politics. I'm talking about, and I'm not just talking about racial issues. I'm not even talking about sexuality issues. It's on and on and on, and if you dare suggest there's a way to make space for peace and listening to one another, you have now turned into one of those people who don't care. And uh, uh, I think it's actually riskier to go and be present amidst and, and maybe get in the way of violence and call people to a renewal in the kingdom than it is just to get angry on social media at somebody. Uh, and I think that's maybe how uh, that's part of being an Anabaptist is to embody uh, and open up space for conversation and bring peace, not um, uh, oh, the word I'm looking for, compromise, not, oh, a third way, which means we don't have to engage the issues. Right. No, folks, this is not a third way. I, I feel like swearing <laughs> when I hear the word third way. Uh, Especially but, how it's been used, right? Because I think its initial usage was actually much more radical, which was uh, from below the nonviolent option, right? Right. And now it's, as I say in my book, right, it's going halvesies, right, yeah, yeah. On, on important issues, yes. mm -hmm. um, which is really deeply problematic. We can't Folks, do that. we're talking about who will be a witness. Run yourself to the local Amazon.com <laughs> and buy this book. Okay, we got to get to the last chapter because yeah. – uh, 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 you get um, uh, you get down to brass tacks. You get down to the real issues on how to actually lead your church into uh, the way of Jesus in in uh, working for justice. And uh, you start out by talking about love, the four letter word love. And uh, I must say, um, I I almost recoil when I hear. It. Here. I don't have an aversion to love. It's not like that. It's like love has either become this nice little sentiment right. and I feel good now and I I can uh, – could you talk to us how that uh, wishy-washy word love in our culture uh, can be something – I'm quoting you. You say Christianity hangs in the balance in how mm -hmm. we, uh, how we uh, become active in the word in the, in the practice of love. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there's no question that for most people, when they're talking about love, they're just talking about sentimentality, right? That's that's all it's really about. And, you know, maybe some sympathizing, oh, I feel bad for what happened to you. Um, but that it doesn't often go much more than that. And so uh, for me, the kind of radical revolutionary love of Christ is precisely at the intersection of compassion and action, right? Um, it's, I mean, it's fascinating when you think about the the word in Greek for um, compassion, like like literally it's about like one's bowels, right? Being like moved, like almost like you're physically ill, right? Yeah. Um, what does it mean to, to hit you in that kind of way and then to act on that, to actually mm-hmm. respond? I mean, that, that's the kind of love that we're, we're seeing um, from Jesus is that kind of action. Go and do likewise, right? Like the Samaritan who actually acts <coughs> on him seeing um, this Jew um, left for dead. And so I think that that those kind of two things coming together is really important. Compassion um, in the fullest sense of it that unites us and brings us in solidarity with other people's uh, suffering, but also then action in response to it. And so that would be the starting point, right? And for me, I mean, I draw on, um, I mean, there's a lot of folks I draw on, but for me, um, a dialogue on the people that have helped me, right, <laughs> love better, which is King and Thurman, right? I mean, it's, it's Dr. King and Thurman have challenged and revolutionized my understanding of love and and have helped it remain, move away from that kind of sentimentalizing to it actually being a weapon that's powerful, right? Powerful to actually bring change. Because as King says, it's the only thing powerful enough to convert an enemy into a friend, right? Mm-hmm. It's powerful. Um, and so to believe and to learn from those kind of folks that actually lived it out in their own lives in challenging circumstances is important. And so Thurman for me helps us understand the internal aspect of it, that bitterness and hatred will eat you up on the inside. It will be a cancer on the inside that will destroy your quality of life, even as somebody else who's done you wrong is not even thinking about you anymore, right? (laughs) Um, And so this is actually a liberative thing for the oppressed. To love is actually a liberating thing. To forgive is a liberating thing. I think that message gets lost um, even in today's society, how liberating that is for oppressed people um, to hear that. But then also then it has a political aspect to it, that it does invite us into the work, um, but in a way that refuses to to destroy our enemies, right? Um, but refuse, but has the capacity in loving our enemies, creates a space where they can actually join us in solidarity with the struggle. And I think that that's powerful enough, but that requires that we see people's full humanity, that we see people created in the image of God, that we see their depth and complexity and that, that there's more to them, that their story is not done yet, right? I think that all of those things are really important it's on the ground if we're actually trying to pursue um, justice on the ground. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's so, so, so powerful. Hey, Mike Moore, I knew you had a question. So right after this question, if you want to cue it up, go ahead. But uh, just playing off of what Drew just said, you know, I, I you, you talk about the love gap and you use three words. Uh, the third word, uh, I don't think I've heard before, but the first word, orthodoxy, right belief. The second word, orthopraxy, practicing right belief. But then you talk about orthopathy. Yeah. Uh, the 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 pathos, the uh, empathy uh, of being there with people. Uh, it's not just enough. You say orthopraxy, orthodoxy. Go in. How how do you develop orthopathy? Go into that a little bit uh, for us. Yeah, I mean, I think that. Well, number. I mean, it, it's to think about us as whole people, right? Um, and that there are different traditions that emphasize the different realities, right? I do think that 
Um, I mean, as someone who's gone through a, the the um, academic, you know, uh, you know, undergrad, masters, PhD, now um, we can spend all time thinking in in really creative ways and got brilliant ideas and want to share them and all that, and that's nice. Um, but a life of just the mind is a fairly empty life, right? Uh, on the other hand, we've got folks, you know, who, and I've learned from many Anabaptist communities are doers, man. They get going a good, strong Anabaptist culture and community, man. They, they want to live this thing out. They want to practice it, right? And this is really important. I've grown so much from that. Um, but if we don't have the kind of renewal of the person, of, of our very being, right, um, the transformation that includes compassion for others um, and to be formed in that. And, and I think that can only happen in the practice of it is, is the context, right, and the teaching of it. But it's in the actual living it out. I mean, I think about um, it was, who was it? Cyprian, I think, who talks about. You know, prior to his baptism, how hard it was. I think he talked about serving the poor, right, or something like that, right? Um, there's actually they're working on him, right? He's got to live this thing out and have to learn. And certainly, his baptism plays a big role in this moment for him. But there's this uh, intentional process of formation that's happening in him, so that he has both the mind, the action, and also the heart, right? The internal feeling, the right feelings um, that align with God's love. And so I think that that's the kind of holistic discipleship that we've got to think through how to do this well, right? And it's not to duplicate exactly what happened with, in Cyprian's life, but it's to figure out that this needs to happen, that we need to be able to form people as whole people in all areas of their lives to conform to God's love and to participate in God's love. Hmm. Yeah. Amen, amen. Drew, what do you um, what do you say to students or to to friends, neighbors who are who are action oriented? You know, they're they're all about the organizing, protesting, um, working in the community, doing the work on the ground. But then when they look at the church, they're like, uh, nah, not thanks. Um, how how is the church in particular? unique to this work that you're that you're describing well i mean if they're if they're followers of jesus and i mean i guess the thing is like what is our goal and what are we so even though this is a very practical answer right not even mm -hmm. a deeply theological yeah. answer but like what, what are they trying to accomplish um i mean I mean, the, the irony is that the church is to say that we believe that there's something more than just an individual response, right? Mm -hmm. But that there's actual communities being formed and that this thing is going to grow um, and that we're all going to collectively participate in what God is doing together and that there will be a manifested, visible, concrete way in which um, communities share resources and do justice and all that stuff, even beyond what is hard to imagine broader, right? So like right mm -hmm. now in my community, there's, um, you know, there's growing conversations around what to do with policing, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I'm on the more radical side of abolishing this thing that does not actually seek and serve the well-being of actual people. That's not providing actual safety for people. Um, but I mean, I don't know if that's happening in my lifetime. Let's be honest. I just don't <laughs> know. I mean, right. I mean, people have been struggling for centuries, right, for against these kind of oppressive systems. And so for us to get to a point where we can reimagine uh, a more restorative way of responding to people's harming of others, hmm. um, for us to get there, it's going to take a while. But I do have hope. I should be able to think that 
that if there's a people that have yielded themselves the preeminence of Jesus Christ, right? Yeah. Um, that in community, we should be able to see what this thing looks like, that we can live this out and that there's actually spaces, um, communities where this is being practiced mm. in concrete ways that, that can provide hope. And then, as I say, like the church should be the very place where we live that out and we should actually only be, in some ways, it should be a fraction of what we're asking the world to do that we're already doing, right? Like, I mean, it's just a portion of what we ask the world to do is already ha happening here. Um, rather than, I think, it's hypocritical when we ask more of the broader society than we're willing to do in our own lives. Mm -hmm. I just don't understand it. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm never the type that will slow people down from calling for justice. Like, that's just not me. You won't get that from me. But I am the kind that is going to invite us to ask some hard questions about the kind of integrity that we have in our own lives with others and to invite people in um, and that we don't have to wait for everything to have figured out, um, but that we can begin right where we are. And that's what the church is. It's, it's God's breaking into our world and inviting us right now from underneath the nose of the empire to begin this new world, the new creation, this new community. Um, and so we've got to live into that. And so that's, it's a, and, and, and it's a much more hopeful thing. And in some ways it's also movement building, right? That is a movement um, on the ground at the grassroots level. So let's participate in that. And that's the dream that I think that's been given to us, God's dream, that we could live into these um, new ways of living in community, not just as Lone Rangers. Mm, that's good. That was so good, uh, a call to all of us uh, to yeah. take the church seriously, uh, even when we see its massive failure. Uh, Drew, it's been a great conversation, been great to have you with us. We're sorry that our technology blew up on us the last time we got together, and uh, but we're so glad you could uh, uh, make time for us again. Folks, uh, the name of the book is Who Will Be a Witness by Drew Hart. I think uh, what we're seeing all across the United States and Canada, I might be a little too optimistic here, but I think we're seeing an Anabaptist critique of existing establishment church all over. So there's Anabaptist brethren, there's Anabaptist Catholics, there's Anabaptist Lutherans, there's Anabaptist Christian Missionary Alliance, that would be my denomination. There's even Anabaptist Christian Reformed Church people, believe it or not. Everywhere there's an opportunity here we're seeing as the culture has become, we're so aware of its hegemonies and its problems. Uh, and this book, uh, Who Will Be a Witness, gives us the wherewithal some of the things we need to think about to lead our churches into a new uh, engagement with culture. So thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks. Drew. And um, we wish you many blessings on your ministry there at Messiah and in your local church, as well as many blessings on this book. Folks, it's time to wrap this up. Uh, uh, it's been good to be with you. Theology on Mission podcast. Give us a review if it uh, if the Holy Spirit whispers in your ear. Give them a review. Give them a review and put it on app. <laughs> I don't think the Holy Spirit sounds like that. But anyways, <laughs> uh, uh, iTunes or wherever you listen, give us a review. Help us spread the word about Theology on Mission podcast. Until the next time, uh, then we will see you soon. Uh, we wish you blessings on Easter. And, and the spring season. Until then, it's Dave Fitch and Mike Moore. Over and out. <laughs>